0: Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. For the third time, by popular demand, we have Amy Woodall, who is EVP of TrustPoint in Indiana. She's been a fantastic guest in the past, and today she's going to talk about something about owning your 50. Amy, what on earth is owning your 50?
1: (laughs) Well, thanks for having me back. First of all, Marcus and I saw each other at our Sandler Summit, which was just a month ago, maybe a little over a month ago, but it feels like two years ago. The world has changed dramatically (laughs) since March the 6th. And I did this talk, I did Own Your 50 in Orlando. And so here's what Own Your 50 means. It basically means, first of all, it's a nicer way of saying own your shit, if I'm being really honest. But, But where I came up with this is when we're dealing with a situation, whether we're experiencing it. Because we're in view of a situation, or we're interacting with another human, we are fifty percent of every problem or solution that comes from that. So, own your fifty. Really, own your part. Own how you're choosing to see it, to talk about it, to react to it.
0: Okay, so this is about taking responsibility.
1: It is ownership.
0: Okay. So, how did you come up with the concept of owning your shit? Sorry, owning your fifty. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah. I would say being a parent, but so some, out, of the other, right, right, some of the other podcasts that, that we've done together, I've talked about customer care. I've talked about dealing with difficult people. And that was really where this own your 50 thing spun, spun out because what I started to notice in my, you know, my special niche within the Sandler world is teaching customer care, right? Once sales sell something, how do we teach the rest of the organization not to screw it up basically? and i sensed a lot of victims i sensed a lot of people wanting to place blame in somebody else's corner it was the sales person's fault it's the it's the customer's fault they're difficult it's this it's my boss it's a and it doesn't just happen in customer care i feel like this happens everywhere and where i thought i was going to go in and teach dealing with difficult people what it really ended up being is that i needed to teach them how to deal with themselves I needed to teach them how to take ownership where they could before they could put out any fire. They needed to deal with the fire within.
0: Absolutely. If you're going to start pointing the finger of blame, look in the mirror first. I think one of the challenges here is that very often because we're running this narrative that tells us that something's wrong and we're looking for some external means of blame, then what we tend to do is we catastrophize. And I'm really curious to find out what you're finding through the work that you're doing about the kind of catastrophizing internal dialogue that people have that gets them to, first of all, puts them in a position where they are looking for extrinsic reasons for the situation Mm -hmm. and what impact that internal dialogue is having on them.
1: It's so interesting because when you hear somebody Sort of talk to you about the problem or the challenge, and you're right. They do. They certainly add on extra loads of drama, and they create their own, you know, scenario that goes around it. What I have found is that typically, whatever we are the most insecure about, we have a tendency to project that on the world around us and make them responsible. So for example, if we have a fear of not being good enough and you have a boss that maybe left you out of a project, we're really going to to make that boss responsible and say, you know, they don't believe in me. They don't think I have the value. This is wrong. You know, bosses have done this before. And we point the finger at someone else. When in truth, we're choosing to see it that way because it validates a story that we have within us. And we do this all over the place. And so what I tell people, my encouragement to them is do not believe everything you think or feel because (laughs) it's it's typically based on an old story that you're trying to prove to be true today, but it's actually from some insecurity when you were six years old, right? And you're just, you're reliving it over and over again. So really be curious about every thought and emotion that you have. And by the way, when a thought and emotion marry one another, it becomes our attitude. And it becomes our attitude we either carry through life and we kind of have the ship on our shoulder in life, or it becomes our attitude in our work environment. And so those are things for us to be really reflective on and say, why am I choosing to see it this way? Why do I choose to feel this way? Is this the most productive thing for me in order to get to where I wanna go?
0: Very interesting. Have you read Randy Patterson's book, How to Be Miserable?
1: (laughs) No, but I love that title. I think many of us have a PhD in that. I know I've been guilty of it.
0: (laughs) It's a fabulous book and it's 40 ways that you find a a way to self-sabotage and run this negative internal narrative, the poor me, the victim script. So let's spend a little bit of time talking about what the the voice of the victim sounds like and how it manifests itself in behaviour.
1: Yeah. So the voice of the victim and for folks listening, you know, we teach a lot about ego states and transactional analysis. And there's this ego state within us that's the child ego state. And it's, you know, our emotional response to how we responded to adults, you know, and, and parents as children. And so often when we're in a victim state, we're basically hooking back that emotional child and it sounds helpless. It sounds, you know, as I say, the victim is giving their 50 away. They're not owning their 50. They're making someone else responsible. So it could come out as this isn't fair. This isn't fair. I'm the last one to know. Nobody tells me anything. I just work here. Well, I have no control. What do you want me to do? It's it's a real helpless tone of my hands are tied and there's nothing that can be done. Woe is me. Poor me. Feel bad for me.
0: Okay, so tell me this then: if someone is running that negative victim script, what's their typically their intent? Is it attention? Is it a cry for help? Is it Just a way of apportioning blame elsewhere.
1: It's probably unique for each person. That is a question to ask ourselves if we're conscious enough to find and recognize when we're going victim to say, what am I hoping that this state gives me? What am I hoping? And by the way, many times we don't recognize we're in the state until afterward. I think it's okay to go screw it up, but then be curious afterward of where you were, what role you played, et cetera. And so it might be for different reasons. Maybe somebody thinks if I take the blame, you know, I can't take blame because blame means I'm bad. Blame means I wasn't perfect. So I think there's different stories that fuel the position that we choose to take. And we've got to be curious about that too. What do I feel like? What safety do I feel like I have by playing this victim role?
0: I interviewed Chip Doyle a couple of days ago and put the podcast out this morning. And what's really interesting is his position on this. When you're in the sale and you suddenly find yourself running this narrative and his advice was be aware of that voice so that you can step out of it and move into the adult. Because the minute the child takes over, and it's not under adult supervision, that's where relationships go horrifically awry. Whether you're in sales, whether you're in a marriage, whether you're dealing with um, a difficult customer, the minute you allow that child to take over, then emotion kicks in and you drop into a lower brain function. And it's very difficult to come out of it. So when you're advising your clients on how to bring themselves out of that child ego state, what are the tips and advice you give in order to stay or get back into adult and back into nurturing parent?
1: Yeah. So A, as you know, Chip mentioned, it is the awareness or consciousness. We've got to see when it's happening. We have to be just as in tune to the internal weather as we are to the external weather. We could say, oh, it's raining outside, but you know, we've got to know what kind of weather we've got playing in our head too. So when we catch ourselves doing it, it it would be to move into an adult state of curiosity and just find the next truth that exists. It's not saying, oh, I'm having this negative thought or this negative emotion and this negative reaction. Let me immediately try and think the opposite and just go immediately. Everything's grand and great and it's fine, but we could ask ourselves the next truth well what is true in this moment you know what is happening around me did i happen to contribute to this what could i do differently we really go into coaching mode in that moment an example i gave at the the summit was me doing this with my son when my son came home and got in trouble at school and said he got a lunch detention and i could have instantly very easily gone persecutor and pushed him into victim and instead, thankfully, there was a consciousness that kicked in. And I just started asking him, what would you do differently if you could do it over again? How do you think you're going to keep it from happening again? What lesson did you learn? And we can, we can do that for other people to help foster them out of victim. But we can also do it for ourselves so that we can choose a different position.
0: Let's take the other negative extreme, which is the critical parent. Often, certainly when my child is hooked. The first thing it does is it turns to the critical parent to go for uh, to protect it and to justify its position. And so then you end up in the I said, she said, I said, she said, and World War III breaks out. What's the voice of the critical parent doing and how is that catastrophizing?
1: Yeah, it's again giving its 50 away, but really blaming and saying, I told you and you should have done this and you knew about this. And this is ridiculous. And often, You know, that persecutor, a.k.a. critical parent, because they're one and the same on the Cartman's drama triangle. When that comes up, it's really that our ego, it's a control. We've lost control somewhere and somebody needs to pay what we expected to happen or what we needed to happen didn't happen and somebody needs to pay. And it is interesting that you can dance between victim and persecutor really fast. I had a client that called once and was so upset that, that, you know, Amy, I I need you to help me out here. I have a I have a client who called me and was, you know, threatening me and telling me that they were going to take their business elsewhere. And he said, and I just don't think it's fair. They know that we're overwhelmed. So the cl- my client was in victim mode. Their client was in persecutor. And when I asked my client, I said, well, what do you think you're going to do about it? It was so interesting to see him jump immediately from victim to persecutor. He said, well, I'm going to show up on that job site and I'm going to tell them if you can't treat me with respect, then you can take your business. And I just sort of laughed. I was like, well, damn, that took like 0.5 seconds for you to jump from victim to persecutor. And then he—he, he, it is nice to have somebody who can point it out for you, although we've got to be really good coaches for ourselves. I think in both cases, victim and persecutor, it is a sense of loss of control and fear. Fear is driving both of those positions for sure.
0: I think I'll go one step further and I think it's about attachment where we are attached to being perceived in a particular way, achieving a particular outcome, or being treated in a particular way, then what we tend to do is allow our attachment to get in the way of reason. And in my above-the-line, below-the-line model, all of the drama triangle is about attachment and ego. Let's flip to the other point on the drama triangle. Which is the rescuer. When you're in rescuer mode, it's clear that you're not owning your fifty. You're trying to own someone else's. So again, how does that manifest itself? And what advice would you give to recognize it and become aware of it?
1: Yeah, it is you're right. We are burdened with everyone else's stuff too. So they're the one trying to juggle everybody's fifty that's happening around. And I think it comes in a place of saying it, there's a sense of responsibility the rescuer puts on them, which is I need to make everyone else feel good and I need to make this easy on them. And it's a burden that they put on themselves to take care of the world and take the care of the world's problems. And so while it might show up in the purest of ways, right? And if we if you ask somebody which is the best position to take. They always say rescuer. And it's not true because while it might seem the best in that moment, because they're they're really trying to help solution come, what they're doing is developing learned helplessness among the people they're interacting with. So the rescuer is, well, okay, here's what I can do. Let me see what I can do. I'm going to call them tomorrow. For example, back to that, you know, my kiddo getting in trouble. If I chose the rescuer role, it might've sounded something like this. Dear me, you know, I would have called up the principal and said, how, how dare you guys treat my son this way? Really validate his victimhood and trying to rescue him. And, you know, th- this is not okay. And that teacher has it out for him, but really trying to rescue my son from, from being victim. And so it can show up in various ways, but but that is the one where we know I'm trying to bear the burden of everyone else's problems and be the fixer. And inevitably, that rescuer is going to fall real quick to either victim, which is, I have no time to take care of myself. I'm so busy doing everything for everyone. No one appreciates anything I do. Or they fall persecutor, which is, I am so sick and tired of fixing your problems. So each one, it's real easy to slide around And that's what's interesting is to be conscious of what character am I choosing to play in this moment because it can change in an instant.
0: It's interesting as well. I think the the rescuer position is very disempowering and it makes people feel less than. So they feel belittled, they feel like they have low worth, you don't value them. And the other thing is they become resigned and they just say, well, shut it. You know, there's no point in me doing it. Uh, Amy's going to just take over anyway. And it's it's such a challenge to stay out of that. Often the rescuer is driven by good intention, but we know that the road to hell is paved with them. And I I often tell people that you can, uh, your uh, fabulous quote that you can tell, if you do it right, you can tell someone to go to hell and thank you and ask for directions. Um, (laughs) So thank you for that one. So... If we look at the kind of things that the critical parent does, my observation is that it's very strongly orientated towards judgment. The rescuer is very much about cosseting, mollycoddling, being permissive. And the victim is all about save me. So when you're experiencing this in a business situation, what advice do you give to people who are feeling that pressure, but they want to stay below the line and operate in the winner's triangle? How can they call the issue, the, the problem for what it is, uh, without getting drawn into a psychological fight or gameplay?
1: Well, I think that's easier said than done, right? Number one, what I encourage people to do is understand and know your own triggers. So typically there's patterns here. If we've been on the drama triangle before, there's a pattern of what's drawn us to it. And things don't typically happen in a vacuum. You know, that saying of how you do anything is how you do everything. Get really curious about the patterns. And if you know your triggers, then you can sense them coming before they're hit. So if your thought is, well, when somebody refuses to take ownership, I quickly want to jump in and go into judgment, right? When somebody is half finishes something. So what I, for, for folks who are listening, if you want to get genuinely curious about this, it would be, I think this is helpful for all areas, track your judgments track your judgments. The things that you judge other people and yourself for are often the triggers that when your button is pushed, it's real easy to jump, persecutor, victim, kind of hop all over. That's one thing that you could do. And also just uh, see the patterns, see the patterns of, of difficulty that you seem to get pulled into and know what your automatic response is and then work on choosing differently. So instead of going victim, child, persecutor, critical parent, rescuer, nurturing parent, but like in a, you know, in, <laughs> in a passive aggressive way, then move to a marrying of adult and nurturing. How can I hold these people safely and the situation safely, but then how can I bring real logic to it as well?
0: Very interesting. So let, let's move into the winner's triangle. So vulnerable, nurturing and empathic and assertive. That is all about being fully present. The drama triangle typically finds you stuck in the past or worrying about the future. So what do you advise people to do to stay in the moment and be fully present?
1: First off, I am obsessed with meditation. I will tell you that it is like taking your brain and your consciousness to the gym. And it helps us stay focused and more aware. And it helps us detach from what we feel like reality is. It's almost like you can step back and you can see it without becoming it. And so if you have or adopt a mindfulness practice, if you, you know, a meditation practice, if you sense that you're getting triggered in that moment, just take a minute and breathe because simply by shifting your focus to breath, breath is happening in the present moment. You're also de-escalating the nervous system and your fight or flight response. Fight or flight response means we are in, we're going to end up being victim or persecutor pretty quickly. So those are some quick things in the moment. And by the way, one of the best things you can do to deescalate the nervous system is what's called the two X breath, meaning that you inhale for, you know, let's say a count of two and exhale for a count of four, or you inhale for a count of three, exhale for a count of six. You, you just exhale for longer than you do inhale, but a simple trick like that, it can, you know, it's a way of hacking your brain because all of these responses that we're having, they are based on old neuro hardwiring and we can hack it. If we just catch it and then do a quick exercise to shift to prefrontal cortex where we can make better decisions and communicate more effectively.
0: Very interesting. Okay. So let's look at what vulnerability means in the context of a difficult conversation. How does that manifest itself and why is it so effective?
1: You know, there's been all of this new stuff that and books and everything that's talking about the power of Intimacy, the power of vulnerability. You know, there's the book Getting Naked, you know, it talks about how you really develop trust with somebody. Who's the woman? I cannot think of her name for the right. life of um, me. She's super. Thank you. Thank you. Brene Brown, her work is everywhere. When we are vulnerable first, when we fall on the sword and we really, that's a sense, that's taking extreme ownership. It, when we're so ourselves and taking, you know, ownership and really owning our fears, our worries, our concerns, and we're coming at it with empathy it allows somebody else to let their guard down so that they can see and experience the truth as well. If we're all working from ego and fight or flight and stress response and all of the BS stories we tell ourselves, our guards are up and we are just fighting to make sure that our version of the truth is seen, heard and felt, right? But when we let the guard down and we say, man, this," I'm really worried about this or my biggest fear, that Sandler phrase that we use, oh, my biggest fear, it is a chance for us to say, I'm going first, I'm vulnerable first, now join me.
0: So key advice there is be vulnerable first. If you want someone to be vulnerable and to open up, you need to be vulnerable first. So let's talk about empathy and nurturing. What is empathy?
1: So Empathy is not sympathy, right? It's not like, oh, you poor baby, because that's really the rescuer coddling the victim. Empathy is, in my terms, I think everybody has a different idea of it. I feel like it's validation. And validation does not mean agreement. Validation means, I see you. I see you. Wow, I really see what you're going through. Wow, I really like, I'm trying to see it from your perspective without trying to paint my picture over top of yours. I'm really trying to to validate and understand and connect with you on your level. And I'm not trying to force it, you know, my way. Tim Roberts, who is my mentor, and I know you love Tim a ton, and he's taught me a lot about the power of trust. And trust is really, you know, built on the foundation of vulnerability and adding in that sense of empathy of can you see and validate someone. He has taught me the power of that and really how quickly you can get somebody to let their guard down, and you can get to solution a whole lot faster when somebody's working with you instead of against you.
0: So when we are genuinely being empathic, one of my mentors, Mark Galston, says that all human beings want to be heard, to feel felt, and to be understood. And I think one of the most important lessons that you can learn in life, but also in sales, is to really pay attention it's to give your 100% focus to the person that you're in front of and really hear what they're saying not just not uh, listen to what they're saying not just hear the words but listen is uh, listening is a whole body experience you want to pay attention to their body language their breathing to their posture their tension and recognize that the person in front of you for them, whatever they're experiencing is very real. And we need to be understood. And part of empathy, and you mentioned it, is a a unit of recognition, is this whole process of strokes and stroking in TA. Do you mind going into some detail around the power of stroking and the different types of stroke?
1: So I'm sure you can add in some different ideas here too. But so stroking in the, you know, when we when we say that term, first of all, I always feel like it's an HR violation whenever we say <laughs> that uh, out loud. <laughs> it's an intellectual stroke, if you will. It's one that's going against the psyche, which is different ways that we do it in sales could be, wow, we hear a lot of people have that problem. A lot of people have that problem. That's a stroke in a sense of saying, you're not the lone idiot who's experiencing this, right? So it's a sense of keeping them Okay wow, that's a great idea. Man, it it must have taken a lot of guts to really bring that idea to life. That's a sense of a stroke of validation and really uplifting. That that could
0: be a rubber band, though.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Acknowledging the, the pain that somebody has, if they're sharing with us, man, that must really be a struggle. So we can provide strokes in various ways. But again, it goes back to that. I see you. I, I, I hear you. I understand you. And what you were mentioning reminds me of the Maslow's hierarchy of, of human needs, right? It, which is we all need food, water, shelter, and sex to survive. I didn't make up that last part. I promise it's really in there. <laughs> and the Kind of the next step from that is acceptance and validation and love. Like we need to know that somebody sees us. And so what a powerful thing to do to be able to provide the stroke, provide the validation with the information that they're sharing with you. Are there some, what are some of your favorite strokes, by the way? I'm curious, Marcus.
0: I'm pleased that you said that. I think one of the the challenges that we often face is that stroking can be construed as being slightly creepy or sycophantic. But I think what's really important with the stroke is it needs to be delivered with intent and positive intent. And you have to mean it. You hear people say, oh, interesting question. But that's a technique. But the principle of, you know, that's a really interesting question. I'm glad you asked. And wow, that sounds really tough. I don't know how I cope under the circumstances like that. Yeah. How does that make you feel? And you know be, being able to use genuine empathy where you are engaging with another human being psyche to psyche, is incredibly powerful, because I think too often, sales feels too mechanical, it feels too tactical, techniquey. And I don't think you do yourself any justice when you sell like that, when you deal with another human being like that. One of the things I've been teaching my clients of late, which I picked up from Todd Camp, is this whole concept of mission and purpose. When you ask salespeople, what's your mission and purpose in the sale? They'll typically come back with to make the sale, to get a good deal, to you know, close, all that kind of stuff. But that's selfish. And I think one of the really powerful things that I've learned through SANLER and through TA is that you're there to serve. Your intent has to be... Can I help? Am I the right person to help? And your mission is to establish clearly what the prospect wants and needs. And your purpose is how they want you to help them. And through stroking, it enables you to help them to open up, to feel comfortable with you, human being to human being. And also another really fundamental rule in Samba is always make sure your prospect is more okay than you. And I think if you're using the technique as a weapon instead of a shield for the prospect, like NLP, I think as well, NLP is a brilliant technology badly applied by many people. And it feels negatively manipulative. Samba as well can be incredibly powerful and potent and empowering. But if you're just using it as technique, then it really does feel manipulative and it feels like a weapon. And so I think what stroking does with the right intent is it softens the blow. It, it it allows you to engage with somebody at a much deeper level. And the quality of the conversations that you have, the, the depth, the richness of those conversations is massively enhanced. In your experience, because a lot of people that you deal with must be on the sharp end, being in the customer service side of things, you know, which is generally customer complaints. How do you manage to work with, you know, what are often poorly paid people who are underappreciated and turn those guys into superstars and real ambassadors for their brands?
1: A lot of it does go back to the own your 50 thing. I will tell you that. And a lot of the folks I work with, yes, I work with customer service folks, but I also work with engineers and project managers and account managers. And so you have all levels that come in. But getting them to sort of see, okay, I have some choices here. I have some power here. I can take some ownership here. I get to choose how I show up today. I get to choose how I respond. I get to choose how I feel. I get to choose how I want to allow other people to feel in my presence. Do I want them to feel better or worse from that? When we teach them that, which I really feel like is root cause stuff. If I could teach you how to communicate with with yourself, you're going to all of a sudden see a possibility where before you saw limitations. So that personally is where I choose to start training um, in a lot of organizations is I, I got to get you to work really well with you before you can work really well with others. And then get them to communicate really well with their internal customers. Because once that's moving through and they're not playing Cartman's drama triangle consistently with each other internally, and they can start to create some ownership and understand how to develop trust and intimacy, then we can really, you know, love and fall in love and be a cheerleader for our brand because it does feel like we're contributing to it and we're not a victim of it. So it's sort of this stair-step approach of first the human (laughs) that's interacting with themselves, then the human that's interacting with their colleagues, and then how we communicate with our customer.
0: Very interesting. Because this, again, makes me think of IR theory and the recognition that our identity, who we are, is fundamental. And, and in Sondra, you know, we teach you know, protect your belly button. Don't let someone into your castle unless you want them to come in. And this is really about owning your 50. It's being able to recognize that you have a choice as to how you respond instead of simply giving away your power and allowing yourself to react and get sucked into something that then spirals out of control. So talk to me a little bit about identity and role in the context of owning your 50.
1: Well, there's so much confusion that we see out there for sure. And, you know, we have this false idea that we are what we do. And so when that changes... I find that when we're coming from a place of living more in our I than we are living more in our R than we are our I, you're going to have a ton of people who are playing persecutor victim, giving their their 50 away or rescuer because they want to be seen as the hero and giving their 50 away because they have this false, this misconception of if I am bad here, it means I'm bad internally. It means I'm, I'm a flawed human being. And I'm so, right. quite tightly to those false truths, which in turn creates the consistent reality over and over again. I'm, you know, it's somebody else's fault, or they're to blame, or I got to do everything for everyone, and, and that's totally buying into our role talk. You know, I did a PowerPoint or I did a webinar last week with a client of mine. And what I showed them was identity versus role. And then the next slide, I wrote spirit versus ego. Because honestly, it, it, to me, that's really what it is. Our identity is who we are to the core, really on a much deeper level. It is constant. It is as constant as, you know, the, the damn tree outside is a constant. Its leaves are going to change. Sometimes they're green or orange or sometimes they're not there at all. But the tree is a constant. That's how I look at us from a spiritual perspective slash identity perspective. And the ego is those roles. I gotta perform to be good. I've gotta, you know, earn the right. I've gotta, you know, be in control or they're just all of the the talk that happens there. So I think it is an interesting point, Marcus, to say, what is the ego chatter that I have going on that's associated with my roles that is allowing me to see and experience this situation from that false viewpoint? And if we can get to the core, you know, our goodness, you know, it's interesting when we're born into this planet and we're babies, we don't have any self-esteem issues. We're not thinking, you know, well, Susie was a seven pounder, and I was a ten pounder. I feel bad about myself. There's none of that that comes along. we We love everything about ourselves, you know, as children, and we learn how to dislike it as we as we get older. So coming back to that constant, the goodness that is within us and and knowing, when we can have control there, it becomes a whole hell of a lot easier to hop on to you know, the, the winner's triangle, as you were mentioning before. It's a lot easier to become empathetic and, and vulnerable and really take that various position when we know who's really driving, which is the identity slash spirit part.
0: So that then brings us neatly to the assertive position in the winner's triangle. How does one make sure that you're staying assertive instead of aggressive? you're saying assertive instead of persecuting and do so in a way that has some grace and doesn't diminish the other person.
1: I think it's making sure you're really strong at the vulnerable side, really strong at the empathy side, because when you bring those to the table mixed with assertiveness, it's a beautiful mix of an adult and nurturing ego state where somebody can present an idea, but it's not forceful where they say, you know, what if we looked at it from this point of view, you know, are you, are you open to having a difficult conversation with me? Now, if you're listening to, and I hope, you know, the, the, the folks who are listening to this podcast, they, they get to really tune into our voices. There's a specific tone associated with that. If I were to come and say, you know, Marcus, I would like to have a tough conversation. Are you open to having that? I would like to provide some feedback. Are you okay with having that? Or, you know, I don't really quite agree the way that you're looking at that. Can I provide a different point of view? This tone is, it's it's the sense of safety, but also there's some assertiveness that's coming there. Have you read the book? Kim Scott wrote it. She talks about ruinous empathy. It really talks about challenging somebody directly it's escaping me. I can see the picture of it right now. But what she talks about is, thank you. Radical candor. It is, that's a fabulous book to read. I think for everybody, especially if you're in leadership, because she talks about when you're going to challenge somebody, you've got to do it. You've got to challenge them directly, but you've got to do it with great empathy. And if you're not doing it, you know, if you're not challenging somebody directly, if you care deeply, but you don't challenge them directly, that is ruinous empathy and you are not helping them, you're not helping the situation. Essentially, if we're on, if we're doing vulnerability and we're doing empathy, but we miss assertiveness, we're just playing rescuer. That's all we're doing. So the assertiveness is what allows us to step into that invisible center, as I say, the own your 50 space, which is in essence, the the winner's triangle, to allow movement and change to happen, to allow them to own their 50 and us to own ours and for us to get to some sort of solution rather than chasing our tail.
0: Very interesting. Let's wrap things up a bit then. If we look at a difficult conversation that someone is having to or was going to have to face. How do you help them prepare themselves? Because I, I think certainly in sales, it's really important to pre-call plan and rehearse. How do you help people prepare for difficult conversations where they know that they're going to have to earn their 50?
1: So the first thing that you want to do is sit down with the end in mind you know, when we're done with this conversation, what am I hoping that we're able to accomplish at the end of that? What does great look like? You know, if I were to go back and say that was a really great conversation or whatever, what does that look like? So really thinking of the end in mind ahead of time. And then with asking that, saying, how do I want to show up? How do I need to show up? What tonality, body language, words do I want to make sure that I'm using? Where can I? What does empathy? What does vulnerability? What does assertiveness look like? How can I create boundaries, but do it in a safe way? And then in the beginning, how can I be vulnerable first? How can I share my biggest fears and also my goal? And so it's like the the lovers of developing trust. Trust takes risk. It means you first. We can't wait for somebody else just to do it. And when I think of these dealing with difficult conversations, it's a you first situation. We've got to initiate. We've got to be the one that has the gut to do it. And so if you started off the conversation with saying, you know, here's what I'm really hoping that we're able to accomplish together today. You're using your upfront contract. What are some things that would be important for you in your mind for us to accomplish? And then what fears do you bring to the table? Can I tell you my fears? My fears are that my buttons might get pushed and my tone may change. And if my tone changes, that may trigger something in you and that might get us off course. If you sense that, can we just call a timeout? It's it's call the elephant out in the room before, you know, put a saddle on it, ride it around. In the Sandler terms, diffuse the bomb before it blows up. So best practices, if I were to just go, I know I added a lot in there, it'd be number one, write out the, start with the end of mind. What do you want to accomplish? Number two, be really reflective. How do I need to show up? What does my body language, tonality, what words do I need to use? How can I embody vulnerability, assertiveness, and empathy? And then three, what's the upfront contract? What rights do I want to make sure they know? What rights do I, do they need to know that they have? And then can we agree on outcome and how we'll hold each other accountable throughout? And that truly is a great way to, for both parties to own their
0: 50. That's outstanding advice. So let, let's wrap up on that because I think we're all on high. I know that you, on May 11th, I think it is, you said you are launching an online customer care program. Do you mind sharing with us a little bit about what that is going to contain and the kind of things that people can expect?
1: Yeah. So the customer care program, what we're going over is once sales sell something, as I mentioned this before, what's the baton handoff to the rest of the organization so that it's it's solid. We're managing expectations. That's one of the things we teach is how do you actively manage expectations, both internally and externally? Um, how do we deal with difficult people and difficult situations while keeping our sanity? What does strategic outreach to clients look like? Right, that could be difficult. The sanity part. What does strategic outreach look like so that we are both cross-selling, upselling, maximizing without feeling like dirty salespeople? And then, what does a you know a language of continuity sounds like? Because, in, as I mentioned before. For internal customer care is just as important, if not more important than external, because if something's broken internally, your customers are going to know it, see it, feel it, even if you put on a brave face for them. So lots of moving parts, but you know, I'm excited to launch this program. I love teaching basically the how do you Sandler internally? That's really what it is.
0: Fabulous. So what, what are you reading, listening to, watching at the moment that's really inspiring you?
1: It's a little the softer side. I have to with us being home and the news. I really tried not to to watch the news. I have two subscriptions that have been amazing. One is Gaia, and the other one is Hay House. And I've just been thinking, what can I listen to and feed my brain with now that makes me feel good about my space in the world? So I've been binging both of those uh, avenues.
0: And what 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 are those?
1: So Gaia is sort of like the Netflix. You know, I would say the spiritual Netflix, like what is it that you want to learn or know or, you know, hear from some of the great spiritual teachers out there. And then similar to Hay House, Hay House was created by Louise Hay, who wrote the famous book, You Can Heal Your Life. And there's been tons of authors that have come from that as well. And I tell you, I'm really inspired on how I can learn how to decode and understand what's happening inside of my head so I can go about the world and own my 50 more effectively too.
0: An audio book that you might like is Awareness by Anthony de Mello. Have you come across that?
1: I don't think that I have. I'm going to write it down, though. Awareness.
0: Awareness. It's only available on audio, and it's him giving a series of lectures. And uh, I'm not in any way religious, but this is a really fascinating introduction to becoming aware of yourself, your surroundings, your place in the world. And the internal dialogue, and the damaging internal dialogue that we run because of judgment—absolutely fascinating. Sadly, he died a few years ago because I was trying to get him on the podcast. But I suspect that I may need a spiritualist to get him on. Okay. So, what what are you struggling with at the moment?
1: Personally, what am I struggling with? Yeah, I think change, change. I mean, we're kind of a, we're in the midst of. You know, if you guys have seen the comfort zone progression of comfort, fear, learning growth, things changed so rapidly for ourselves and for our clients that we were all pushed into fear, you know, but many of us chose how, how long we wanted to stay there and then moving into learning. And so I think that's just, you know, really acclimating to working and having my kids home, being a teacher, can I tell you, I'm struggling at being a seventh and eighth grade teacher right now. <laughs> lots of lots of time. With my husband has been home nonstop. And so I think that's probably what I find myself going introspective about how I'm responding and showing up in those situations.
0: Very interesting. Okay. So what are you gonna do about it?
1: (laughs) I'm meditating more. Maybe I'm drinking a little bit more, getting outside. I actually have readopted my gratitude practice and it's one of those sounds like such a thing to do, but simple things like getting out and driving. I'm just so damn glad to be in this car and driving right now. I'm so glad to see this tree. I'm so glad to be able to pull into a Starbucks. And so I have been very mindful of the many, many things to be grateful for, even when there seems to be a lot of restrictions.
0: I think on that note, we shall end it because I think gratitude is a fantastic characteristic and people who are grateful are magnets for others. And you certainly are, Amy. So thank you so much. This has been a wonderful conversation and I can't thank you enough.
1: Thank you, Marcus. I always love being on.
0: It's an absolute delight. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. If, if you've enjoyed this conversation and you feel that you want to contribute through comments, then please get in touch. Amy, how can people get hold of you?
1: Yeah. Find me on LinkedIn. It's just Amy. I think it's LinkedIn slash Amy Woodall. It's the best place to find me.
0: Excellent. And if you want to comment on this podcast, then please do. If you have questions for either of us, then please get in touch. And if you think that you would be an interesting guest on the Inquisitor podcast or my new podcast, which is for scale-ups and hyper-growth technology companies, then please Let me know. And if there's someone you think would be a great guest, please get in touch at mkauke at sandler.com. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast once again. Stay safe, be happy, and be grateful. Bye-bye.